the same teacher you have for elementary school is not going to be able to be the one you need for high school. It doesn't mean they are bad. It just means that you move to a different level and maybe you need a different approach. I'm Leon Guidry, and this is the Brother Be Well podcast, sponsored by Blue Shield of California's Blue Sky Initiative. Today, we're addressing trauma and healing with an emphasis on boys and men of color. It's about to get real with our hosts, experts, and guests. Gather around, y'all. Hi, I'm Michael P. Coleman, content director for Brother Be Well. Today, in one of a series of Brother Be Well conversations on trauma and healing, made possible by the support of Blue Shield of California's Blue Sky Initiative, we're exploring culturally relevant therapy. We'll define it, and we'll talk about why it's so important for any individual or organization looking to serve an increasingly diverse population. Let's have a conversation right now. And joining me in this conversation is an integrated behavioral health specialist. He's also a Brother Be Well clinical advisor, and he's also a friend of mine, Julio Cruz. Welcome back to Brother Be Well. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Really good to have you. Let's jump right into this great topic, I think, for us to be having on this platform. And I can't think of anybody I'd rather have it with, Julio. So let's get at it. Let's go for it. Thank you for having me again. First, will you define culturally relevant therapy for the Brother Be Well family? You know, it's it's a very broad term, and I think that one of the things that I noticed there is an emphasis right now in culturally relevant therapy, but is the understanding that we are not uh, all cookie cutter, right? We have to look at the different aspects of who makes us who we are. I think that's something that is very important is to understand that the experiences of one group are not the same as another group and have all those things in in mind and keep it into consideration when we are working with a therapist. For me, for instance, it's very important that the therapists that I work with understand what it is like to live in this presentation, right? As a man of color, as a gay man, somebody who has... uh, live in different cultures and I'm the result of many different cultures, right? That understands that my experiences and the way I see things spiritually, emotionally, are not the same as other people. You know, it's very important to have a lens of what what role your culture, your identity plays into your person and how it affects the way you perceive your emotions and like simple stuff like if i if i tell somebody who doesn't have an indigenous background that my spirits talk to me or like i have a connection with the great spirit or nature and that the trees talk to me when i approach them they may think that i'm absolutely crazy and bonkers but somebody who understands my culture and is not only seeing me in a clinical lens because of what the dsm5 says is going to understand me better. It's going to have a much better relationship with me. I really appreciate that. That's a beautiful way to put it, Julio. And I, I knew you do a great job there. A really beautiful way to put that and easy to understand. I really appreciate it. Thank you. On the, on the surface, one might think that therapy is therapy. And I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here. You might think that therapy is therapy. And you needn't necessarily be culturally relevant as long as that therapy is effective. For example, if someone is being treated for anxiety or depression, cultural relevance, as you just described it, can take a backseat to the clinician's competence with regard to anxiety or depression, what led you to the therapist to begin with. Can you walk us through why cultural relevance is so very critical 
when we're working with a diverse set of consumers. Absolutely. I think that being uh, being a person who experiencing depression or is going through anxiety um, is a very broad term, right? What what does that look like for me? What does it mean? What are the sources of my depression and my anxiety? As uh, when we look at cultural aspects of that, do I come from a culture that values family and community in a much deeper way than other communities? Or is it important for me to be able to have access to nature, to ritual, to cultural practices? Is that what is causing me to feel this depression or feel anxious for being, um, you know, having social components to my day-to-day life that I'm not used to or that I'm experiencing uh, intergenerational trauma? Somebody who doesn't have those experiences is not going to understand that therapy, there's the basics of it. That's what you learn in school. That's what you, like, can read in a book, Right. But the reality is that then what what connection you have with the person that is in front of you, whether it's right now with telehealth, even more important to understand that there is an importance for me to have the face-to-face contact, to be in proximity of somebody, feeling that warmth, feeling that confidence. And since it's not possible for a lot of us right now, how do I build that connection where you, you spend five minutes of your time first getting to address me in the as a whole right rather than just jumping into okay so our session is starting right now and let's let's use some cpt or dbt to uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever modality you want to apply without really addressing the other components of my life I really appreciate that one too, Julio. You remind me of when you and I met for the first time here in a, 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 a digital session, kind of like this one. And when we finally met face to face, I felt like I knew you already. We were already good buddies. And the first time we sat down and had a cup of coffee, I don't know if you remember, remember well, that. Absolutely, now, yes. Yeah, yeah, we had a connection already. So really appreciate that perspective as well. I've always thought about language uh, being both unifying and dividing. It can be a little bit of both, I think. With regard to the different languages that are often spoken among mental health consumers and and by members of the general population even, there's a critical difference I learned between providing translation services and providing interpreter services. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can differentiate between those two. Everybody's not aware that they're not completely interchangeable. So why don't you differentiate between the two for the family? For me, translation is like you're literally saying what the words into a different language, right? But interpreting, it it's got, it goes much deeper. You have to be familiar with somebody's culture to understand what the words mean, what an expression means. And I think that sometimes it's even like if you speak the same language, like, you know, I if I had a therapist who, I don't know, I, I, I'm going to uh, my therapy in a Spanish session, but it's somebody who is from Venezuela and doesn't have the context of the way that I interpret language as a a Spanish speaker that was both grown in Mexico and Spain, the context of that is going to get lost. So the interpretation is very important to know that you're putting a piece of what the person is meaning and feeling into the words. 
what are some of the things that can hinder cultural competence? If that's the goal, I'm wondering what are some of the things that can can get in the way or be a barrier to achieving cultural competence? I think that sometimes when we go and try to learn what cultural competency is, we we think that because we learn about a specific way of addressing a population, that's all it takes, right? And then we, what we are doing, we're adding preconceived notions of this person is going to present this way because of their race or their ethnicity or their background. And, you know, it's like trying to find that balance in between this is how me being aware of other people's culture can help me, but also having the humility to know that I'm not an expert on those person's cultures and that I had to remove all my preconceived ideas that just because I took a few classes on cultural competency, I'm going to be ready to work on it. It's a day-to-day process, and I think the biggest hindrance is to think that I'm ready all the time, that I have no more to learn. Every time I'm with a new person, I have to learn a little bit about who they are and their culture and how they present it. Like within your community, my community, we all see culture in a different manner, right? Within uh, the indigenous populations, there's a very difference, big difference between how we experience culture. I live in California, in Maryland, I mean, like New York, there is a very huge difference of what culture means to all of us, even within this country, even within the same populations. You just touched on something. You touched on quite a lot there, Julio. So I'm going to try to figure out where I want to go from what you just said. But you used the word um, humility that we're going to touch on a little bit later, I hope. But I'm wondering, based on what you just said, how, and I think I know the answer to this, but how will we know? How would someone know when they've achieved cultural competence? How, how will you know when you've gotten there? Or can you get there? I think that one of the things is understanding that it's a, it's a process that never ends that you have to allow the person to be the expert on who they are. You're a conduit. The job of, like, when when I meet with somebody because they're in crisis and I have to help them, I don't have the answers. The reality is that people have the answers to their own things. I'm just a conduit. I'm not to help them get to where they need to get. And having that humility to know that, Part of the cultural competence is to know that I'm not the person who's going to cure or solve anything. I'm just there to help. Would you agree, there's a bit of an aside, would you agree that humility um, isn't in abundance in today's society at all? That That's a big barrier, I think, because most people aren't humble enough to admit when they don't know something. And, you know, I, for instance, I don't think that's one of my own shortcomings. If I don't know, I'm the first to say, I don't know. I'm ready to learn, and I'm I'm wired to learn something every day. But I don't think that humility is is in abundance in today's society. Would you agree or disagree? I agree. It's not in abundance, and I think that sometimes it also comes from an aspect of fear of the unknown, or you know, like sometimes we we don't know how to approach somebody to say, "Hey, I don't know everything about." 
your culture, who, who, what makes you who you are. And it's a difficult dance sometimes to be with somebody that you're willing to learn from, but also understanding that it's not your responsibility to teach you things about their own culture. Given everything we talked about so far, Julio, and I appreciate your time and attention today, given everything we've talked about, how can a therapist become more culturally competent? What are some of the steps he or she can take to become more culturally competent? You know, I want to um, I want to share an experience that I had when uh, I was looking for a therapist the last time when I moved to Sacramento, and I reached to my medical providers. I said, do you have a person of color? that uh, can see me. And it was funny because the response, the first thing they said, well, we have somebody who speaks Spanish. And I said, that sounds amazing, but that's not what I asked for. Um, do you have somebody who, uh, who represents that, has some shared lived experiences with who I am? And unfortunately, they didn't. But the first interaction that I had with my therapist, I knew that I had to be very open and upfront and say, hey, when I was looking for a therapist, I needed somebody who's more aware of my culture, that is aware of like my experiences, and I wanted a person of color. I'm willing to work with you, but I want to know that you feel comfortable having the humility that you don't understand everything about me, that you don't know everything about what my culture, what my different traditions and everything represent. And that was somebody who was willing to do the work and was willing to learn. Mm. Right? And, you know, it's, I think that when you find a therapist, it's a beautiful relation. If you're willing to work together with the therapist at the end, it's another person that is also having the same, same challenges, experiences. Well, we're going through these crazy times together, right? But just as I need him to be humble, I also had to be humble myself. And I had to be honest and upfront and say, this is what works. And this is not, this doesn't work for me. I, I think, Julio, if, if you don't mind my saying, I've never been had the benefit of being on the receiving end of a statement like the one you just told in your story. Most people, you know, they, they that person, I'm sure, was proud of, of him or herself. We have someone who speaks Spanish, and I think it takes a little, uh, a, a great sense of self for someone to say, that's fantastic, that's marvelous, but that's not what I asked you. That is not the question I just asked you. So I could imagine uh, what the person on the other side of that communication, you force them to kind of uh, step up their game a little bit, I would think. So appreciate having people like you in the world who would just, you know, very clearly say what you want. Let's take a look, if you will, at the demographics of African-American and Latinx people in this country who over-index, we know this, with regard to serious depression, for instance, and the percentage of the same populations who are working in as mental health clinicians. Uh, roughly 13% of the country is Black, according to the last census. And that's compared to only 4% of working mental health clinicians who are African-American. The, the, the numbers in the Lat Latinx community are even more dire because more of the population is, is Latinx in this country. If we're to provide truly culturally competent care, as you just so beautifully described to us, I'm wondering, do we have a pipeline problem with regard to people of color in mental health? 
Absolutely. And also, I think that we have a huge education when it comes to mental health problem. I think that there is a lot of stigma in our communities in regards to how we look at mental health. And until we don't address that, we cannot look at higher numbers for representation of people who are working on the field, right? Uh, also, if there is no demand because of how we perceive therapy, all the stigma that comes attached to it, whether it's in the African-American community, the Latinx community, the indigenous communities, the medical places are or like the providers are going to look, okay, who can I work with? Who represents the patients that are asking for the services, right? So going back to what I said earlier, it was very important for me to ask for a person of color. I knew pretty much that they were not going to have somebody that I could work with, with what I was asking. However, putting it there was going to make them look into what do we need? How do we create opportunities for people of color? How do we start talking to patients about this is a a pathway for a career? Like we need representation to be able to address much better these cultural competencies, to be able to work with people who look like me, who look like you, who have lived experiences like we have, that understand what it is like to walk in this presentation every day. So it's quite a lot to think about. I wish we had more time on this particular topic, but it's a lot to think about. You've touched on the next question I was going to ask you. What are the ways in which we can go about finding a culturally competent therapist? One of them you just mentioned, you got to speak up. You have to tell your, your medical provider that you're looking for that. And I love what you just said, Julio. You knew either through your professional experience or intuitively, you knew that that organization wasn't going to have someone, but just asking the question puts it on the table so that when he or she is recruiting or they're talking about adding to the team, those questions will be in their head. We could meet the needs of certain people and we got to do a little bit better. What are some of the other ways in which someone can go about finding a culturally competent therapist? I think that it's very important when uh, you're asking for services to have a two-way conversation, right? If uh, if you ask to see a therapist, usually they do a screening prior for you, prior to you being able to schedule an appointment with a therapist. So they ask you, what are you experiencing? What do you want to see a therapist? How long you've been feeling this way? Uh, you have to do a PHQ-9. You have to do a suicide assessment. All of these things, right? So the medical carriers or the providers are getting the information they need. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for us to do also an interview of, okay, what is important for me to have in a therapist? A lot of what works in therapy is the relation and the communication you build with that person. So for me, I always ask, okay, uh, do you have a person of color? Do you have somebody who identifies as LGBTQI+. Do you have somebody who has uh, experienced themselves any kind of uh, historical trauma? That somebody who's been in treatment themselves. Like all these questions are important because 
we are helping also to find the person that we need and establishing um, expectations of what we need and what we deserve as a recipient of the services. I really love the way you put that, what we need and what we deserve. And both of those things need to be on the table. Beautifully put, beautifully put, Julio. You talked about some of the questions that that you can ask of an organization when you're searching. So once you find the person that you think is the right person, I don't know if this is the right approach or not, but in the three periods of my life where I, I you know, needed a therapist, found a therapist and sat down for the first time, I treated that as an interview, much like a job interview. And I really interviewed that therapist and asked some pointed questions. I don't know if that was a good approach or not. You can tell me if, I, if I've been on track and other people who have done that have been on track. I would think that's a good thing. And if so, what are some of the other questions that we could ask a therapist as we are making decisions about whether to move forward with that person? Yeah, I think that it is very important. It's a very good approach because you're in a very vulnerable position when you go to therapy. You're going to be putting your emotions to somebody that you don't know for Adam, right? Yeah. So how do I see it in front of somebody that is going to be hearing all my stuff? I do understand and I want people to understand that there is boundaries that therapists cannot cross, whether it's a counselor for substance use, mental health, uh, somebody who's a crisis interventionist, we have to keep certain things within ourselves so we don't do transference of or like overshare certain things. But there are things that you can ask, like how long have you been practicing? What experience do you have in the modality that you practice? What are the benefits of that modality to what I'm feeling, what I'm going through? If that doesn't work, will you be open for me to let you know, this is not working out for me. Can we try something else? And it, as, you, as you put it really well, it's, it's an interview. You're doing an interview and setting, like, I think that part of it is like advocating for yourself. Because once again, I said, we not only need it, but we deserve the treatment. Yeah, we absolutely do. We absolutely deserve it. Let's think about then carrying that analogy through just a little bit more. So you you interview your therapist and you hire your therapist and you're you're moving along for a while. Um, might there come a time when you may want to fire your therapist? And if so, mm-hmm. when would when will we know it's a good time to do that? I think that um, one of the things that I always recommend for people to do is first have a conversation with your therapist. Let them know that you feel that the approach is not working, that you feel that you're getting stagnant, there is no progress, and be be honest. I mean, at the end, this person has listened to some of the saddest, darkest things in your life. So there's nothing wrong with letting them know, hey, this this is not working. Can we try something else? Is there a different uh, modality of therapy that you practice that you think can help me with these other areas so we can continue to uh, progress. Once you have that conversation, I think that you can give it two or three more sessions. And if you feel that you're not being heard and it's not working, by all means, you can tell your therapist, you know what? Thank you very much. This is not working anymore. I think that sometimes we get stuck because some therapists are able to help us 
to like the initial hurdles of what we're going through. But the idea is that just because you go to elementary school and then you go to high school, the same teacher you had for elementary school is not going to be able to be the one you need for high school. It doesn't mean they are bad. It just means that you move to a different level and maybe you need a different approach. You need to have a different ear. You need a different bounce back of the ideas that you're having. Julio, um, I don't use the word brilliant often. I, I think really you got to earn that word. You are you are really brilliant. That analogy, I will never forget. The, 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 the teacher you have in kindergarten can't carry you through grade school and the teacher you have in grade school can't carry you through the high school. That's a great analogy and leaves you positioned really well to make those critical decisions that you have to make for yourself. I've, I've always believed we have to be our own best advocate. We, we have to be that. And certainly with regard to health care and then mental health care, we've got to be that. So that's a brilliant, brilliant analogy. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I could, again, talk about this stuff with you all day, Julio Cruz, integrated behavioral health, uh, integrated behavioral health specialist and Brother Be Well clinical advisor and my buddy. Thanks. Thank you, Julio Cruz. Really, really appreciate having you. Always great to see you. It's amazing to be with you guys, you know, anytime. I love you and I love the work that you guys do. I'm so thankful that you share space with me. We, we love you, too, and, and I will certainly be calling on you again. We'll look forward to talking again. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening into this, uh, watching and listening into this particular conversation. I also want to thank our sponsor for this one, Blue Shield of California, and specifically their Blue Sky Initiative. That initiative boosts access to mental health support. You can learn all about that fantastic program at bluesky.blueshieldca.com. That's bluesky.blueshieldca.com. Another website I've got to tell you about, our own brotherbewell.com. If you like this video, you learned something here and you want to check out more of the videos, either in this particular series or in a, any one of a number of topics related to behavioral health or, or physical health, check us all out. Those videos, audio podcasts, print pieces, all of it's at brotherbewell.com. We're a membership service. So if you can join as a member, that would be great. If you want to start out a little slower than that, give us your email address. You'll sign up for our blog and two or three times a week, you'll start to get notifications about videos just like this as they go live. All of that is at brotherbewell.com. Until next time, and I can't say goodbye. I hate that word. So until we get to see and talk to you again, my name is Michael P. Coleman, content director for Brother Be Well, asking you to do two things for me. Take great care of yourself, and we're doing everything we can to give you the tools that you need to do that. When you get that down, reach out or reach to the side and grab somebody else. Take care of them, too. Until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Brother Be Well podcast. I'm Leon Guidry. Shout out to our sponsor, Blue Shield of California's Blue Sky Initiative. It takes a village, and we're doing our part to address and heal trauma while supporting parents and caregivers along the way. Thanks for stopping by, and remember, my brothers, be well.